0: Well, good morning. With the persons sitting next to you or near you, I want you to discuss this question. What's the most beautiful building you've ever seen? The most beautiful building you've ever seen. Share that with the people around you. All right, somebody tell me what's what's the most beautiful building you've ever seen? What's somebody share in your group? Yes. I, I love, thank you for sharing that. What's your first name? Remind me. Serena. Serena. Thank you for sharing that, Serena. And uh, I, I appreciate the detail that you just shared. It's obvious that it stuck out to you, right? Because you're able to describe it in such, such detail. Somebody else, what's the most beautiful building you've ever seen? Anybody else? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Somebody else, most beautiful building. Yes, Courtney. Say it again. Biltmore Estate. Can you describe it in any way? It's big. It's good. Has a library, okay. Anybody else? Most beautiful building you've ever seen. Now, um... I've never been to this particular building, um, but uh, we're going to put a building on the, on the screen. This is, this is the Taj Mahal right in India, which you Google websites, right, most beautiful buildings in the world. This is on the list for sure. And most people who have been there, been to this building, um, would, would say, yeah, that's, that's definitely the most beautiful building I've ever seen. Um, there is another building, and I don't have a picture of it, that does not rival this building in any shape or form. Um, it's in Newark, Ohio, which is about thirty minutes from where I grew up, and it is in the shape of a basket—Longaberger baskets. Okay, you guys ever? Some of you, may, my mom used to sell Longaberger baskets, so that's the only way I know about this building, right? So the building—if you Google it. You can do it now, I don't care if you want, because the curiosity is just killing you, right? So go ahead and Google it if you want, right? Longer burger baskets, Newark, Ohio. It looks just like a longer burger basket. Yes. OK, You passed it yesterday and took a picture. There you go. See, it's so, so good you got to take a picture of it, but it doesn't look anything like that. All right, but most people would say that the most beautiful building in the world is this building called the Taj Mahal. As some of you know, and Kyle shared with us, that we've kind of come through this little book, this study in the book of Haggai. And the whole focus in the book is about God's people rebuilding God's temple, the physical building where God made his presence known. And at the end of that little book, as we learned last Sunday, God gives a promise, a pretty big promise to Zerubbabel, who was the leader of God's people at that time. And, and as we discovered, Zerubbabel, that, that promise wasn't fulfilled by Zerubbabel himself, but by a descendant of him, and the name of that descendant is Jesus. And we didn't get a lot of time to look at a particular quote, but, so, I, so I brought it back to, to today because I think it's important for us. It's a quote by um, Richard Wolf, Richard Wolfe on his commentary on Haggai. And basically says this, Zerubbabel led Israel out of the Babylonian exile, And Christ delivered, or led us out from the bondage of sin. Zerubbabel built the temple of God, and Christ is building the spiritual temple, the church. And so he's telling us that when you look at the life of Z, Zerubbabel, his life is to lead you to Christ, no different than your life, my life, if we're followers of Jesus, right? That, That my life, the purpose of my life is to point people to Jesus, and that was the purpose of Zerubbabel in his life. But here he talks about how... Christ, just as Zerubbabel was leading God's people to rebuild a physical temple, when we look at Christ, Christ is building a temple also, a spiritual temple, a temple called the church. And I just thought it might be good for us as we kind of approach Easter, coming up to Easter in a couple Sundays, to just spend a couple weeks looking at the spiritual temple that Jesus is building called the church. And looking at different characteristics that scriptures, the scriptures give us about the church. And, and some of these, most of us are going to know these. all right These, these I don't think I'm going to say anything. You're going to discover anything that's like, "Whoa, revolutionary, maybe." But yet I think it's so easy for, for me, especially, to just kind of drift when it comes to what is church and why church and all this stuff. And so I, I really hope that these things are, are intended to just kind of refresh us on what church is and the characteristics that Scripture gives us about the spiritual temple Jesus is building. If you go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, we're going to look specifically at verses 19-19. Through 22, and we're going to unveil five characteristics about this temple that Jesus is building. And I talked about Easter Sunday and why this is important. It's important because on Easter Sunday, we're going to gather with an African congregation, local congregation right here in Anderson. We're going to celebrate Easter Sunday together with our African brothers and sisters. We're going to have a a breakfast here at 930 in the morning. Then we're going to come together at 1030 and just celebrate Jesus together. I have a guest speaker, Jim Woolham's coming. He's a director of mission over the NKBA, Northern Kentucky Baptist Association. Friend of mine, he's going to speak. Going to be an amazing morning. So I want to invite you back on Easter Sunday. But I think it's important for us to understand this church, and and we'll look next Sunday at at another characteristic of the church that will help us, I think, appreciate what's going to happen Easter Sunday with our African brothers and sisters. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, but look specifically right now at verse 21. Look what the Apostle Paul writes. Now, this is 600 years after the events in Haggai. This is 600 years when, so imagine God's people building a physical temple during the time of Haggad. 600 years after that, Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected from the grave. He's ascended to heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit. And this is what the Apostle Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. He says, In whom, meaning in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? Somebody tell me what to say. Next two words. A holy temple. A holy temple in the Lord. So here, what Paul is describing, he's saying Christ is building a church. He's building a temple. And so this morning, as as we kind of unpack these verses, verses 19 19 through 22 specifically, we're going to see some characteristics about this temple that Jesus is building. But let's read the passage, and we'll pick it up in verse 13 for context. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And specifically, when he talks about two becoming one, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, who were two separate groups. And he's saying now, because of Christ and the gospel, these two groups which were separated come together to form one group, one family, if you will. And so he says, he he did this, he is our peace who's made us both one, verse 14, and has broken down in his flesh that wall of hostility that kept these groups apart. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both To God in one body, how? Through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, talking about the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's look at the first characteristic, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, if we just stop right there, what, what's Paul talking about here? He's, he's talking about people. He's saying, you are this. You are citizens. You are citizens with the saints. God has brought you together to become part of a people. Now, I know we know this, right? So here's the, the characteristics. Church is a people. It's a people. We know this, right? But it's so easy to drift from this and, and, and to drift from it. But church is a people, It's not, you don't go to church. You go to be with the church. And and parents, teach your children that. Help them understand a right idea of of church, a right biblical understanding of of, of truth in church, that you don't go to church, you go to be with the church. But I find myself saying, I'm going to church, I'm going to house church, all that stuff. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. But yet we need to understand that, no, we're not going to, church is not an event. It's a people And that's what he's saying. Church is a people. So we don't go to church. We go to be with the church. So what Jesus is building is not a physical structure. He's building a people. That's what he's building. And it's a specific people. Right? Look at what he says if you go back up to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And if you go earlier in that chapter, the specific people he's talking about are those people who have uh, been saved by faith or been saved by grace through faith in Christ. They understand that they're sinners separated from God and they understand that God sent his son Jesus To earth to live a perfect life, die on a cross, shed his blood on that cross, come back to life after being dead for three days. And those who put their faith in life in Christ, he rescues from sin, cleans them, makes them holy, a holy temple. And so it's those who surrender their lives to Jesus and that truth, the gospel, they're the church. Now, I grew up in church. Many of us maybe grew up in church, and in Sunday school, right, sometimes a teacher would use a little hand motion. I've used this before, but it's been a while. And they would say, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, see all the people. Right, and that was just kind of a hand motion to, to kind of help us understand the church. That's not accurate. I know they meant well, all right, I'm, you know, but that's not really a good understanding, biblical understanding of the church, all right, so what we really should say is, here's the building, here's a steeple, open the doors, the church is the people. But that's not even totally accurate, because not everyone that sits in a church on Sunday is part of the church, if we're honest. Because not everyone that goes to church is a Christian, right? So just because someone goes to church doesn't make them Part of the church. It's only those who've repented of their sins and by faith have put their trust in their lives in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. And when they put their trust in Jesus alone, He sends His Spirit to live inside them. Those people are part of the church. And so I say all this to help us understand that what Jesus is building is a church, is a people. And church is a people. We need to be about people. Jesus is about people, He's about His church. Another characteristic that I want us to see here is also in verse 19. He says, Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, the word household refers to those who belong to a family. It's like relatives. And so, what's Paul saying here when he writes this? He's saying, Well, then this temple that Jesus is building is like a family. We're family. Right? I know some of us, you know, maybe we didn't grow up in the best family. Right? Or we don't have a really good idea of family or maybe we've been wounded by our family. And so when we hear this, this is maybe difficult for some of us to really get a hold of like being part of a family. Or maybe you felt isolated from your family for years. Whatever the whatever your vi- vision of family is, whether it's good, positive, bad, ugly, whatever. But Paul tells us here that we're part of a family. Whose family? Who's, who's God's, the household of God? So, so let's not quickly move past. So, the God of the universe, right? The God who spoke into existence, who breathed life into Adam, who right now is giving you the very breath you need to live right now. Like that God is alive and He's active in your life, doing something in you right now. Right? All those little to blink, to breathe. You know, to to can't wait to go visit Longaberger Baskets in Newark. All all that stuff, right? I mean, that's coming. He's alive and he's active and he's saying, I have a family. I have a family. And when you surrender your life to me, you become part of my family, God says. I want you in my family. You belong. You, You belong. And so if some of us feel like I don't feel like I've ever belonged to a family, Jesus says, come in. Come in. I went to the cross I I spilled my blood on the cross and came back to life so you could be part of this family that God has. And so Paul's reminding us that church is a people, church is a family. and, And in chapter one, we won't look at it, but verses four and five, he talks about how God adopts us into his family. So we're adopted into God's family. And so I don't know what you think of when you think of family, but I mean, I didn't always get along with my family growing up especially my brother and my sister. My brother's about six years younger. My sister's two years older. We'd get into fights. We'd get into arguments, right? I'd even get in arguments with my parents. I mean, families aren't perfect. But you mess with one of my family, you mess with me. Even though I might, not, I might be at odds with my, other people in my family, you mess with... We can all, my brother and I could be fighting and yelling at each other, but all of a sudden, someone's not picking on my brother, they're now picking on me. What is that? How's that? That's family, Right? And so you're a part of this family. And so when the enemy picks on one of us, he picks on all of us. Right? When one person in our family is hurting, we all come alongside and hurt with them. Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, We're the body. And when one member suffers, we all come alongside and suffer alongside with them. And when one member rejoices, we get excited with them because we're family. And so I wonder, do we treat each other like this? And I think one thing that's so unique about living church is I think in a lot of ways we really do. When there's needs, man, we, a lot of times we're just on it. We're trying to help meet each other's needs like a family meets each other's needs. And so I want you to think, do you see the church like a family? Do you, do you see the church like a family? Think about how you relate to your family. How you sacrifice for your family. How you give to the family. Whatever it might be. How, do you see church as a family? God does. The Scriptures tell us in Hebrews that Jesus is our brother. It talks about that, how, how Christ is our brother. Think about that. So when someone's bad-mouthing your brother, what are you going to do? Do we do anything? I mean, we're We're family. I mean, Jesus sticks up for us all the time. I love that, that passage in Acts 9 when Paul is persecuting the church and he's riding the horse on the way to Damascus. What happens? Jesus shows up, poof, Paul's off the horse. Listen to what Jesus says. You know what Jesus? What the question is that, that Jesus asks, asks Paul? He says, why are you persecuting me? Well, if I'm Paul, I'm going, I wasn't persecuting you. I was persecuting the church. I love that Jesus says, no, 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 you're persecuting me. You mess with the church, you mess with me. You, you, you persecute the church, you persecute me. And I love that about Jesus. So when the enemy's after you, you're not alone. Jesus is there. He's with you, fighting for you and fighting with you. Why? Because he sees us as family. So a third characteristic that I want us to see, it comes from verses 20 and 21. He says this, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now here, this is where the language sounds similar to Haggai, right? Where you talk about building and a foundation and cornerstone and, and literally that, that phrase joined together. If you think of like putting a house together, it literally means to frame together. So, so Jesus is framing together this, this building, these people. And he's joining us together. And that's what he's saying. And then he tells us that there's this cornerstone, the foundation stone. And who is that person? He is Christ. And that cornerstone is the stone that would go into the foundation, first stone laid, that would guide all the other stones and provide stability for the rest of the structure, for the rest of the building. And Paul is saying Christ is that cornerstone for the church. The church is built on Christ. It is not built on a pastor. It is not built on a program. It is not built on a meeting or a service. It is built on Jesus. Jesus. The church is not built on me. If it ever becomes about me, I'm not doing it right. right? I, then I've made the focus about me. If it ever becomes about you, then you're not doing it right. Right? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and who He is and what He's done for us on the cross. He's the foundation. He's the stability and growth of the church. Any church, any house church, any ministry that never talks about Jesus or rarely talks about Jesus or talks about a Jesus different than what's in this book is not the church. It's just posing as one. It's not the church. If it's not built on the Jesus of Scripture then it's not the church, all right? And so if you're ever part of anything where Jesus is not the center, he's not the focus, it's not the church because he's saying it is built on Christ. It's built on Jesus in whom, he says in verse, uh, in, in verse 21, in whom the whole structure, the whole church being joined to the, grows into the temple in the Lord, in Christ. And then verse 22, he says, in Christ, you also, I mean, he's the focus. Jesus is the focus, The gospel message is the focus of the church. He's the foundation. I was getting my hair cut yesterday and at uh, at sport clips, and they have all these screens right when you get your hair cut there. And um, while I was getting my hair cut, was the National High School Cheerleading Championship. Not what, you know, probably not my first choice of what I would have chosen to watch, but I didn't really have a choice. But what they were doing was, you know, they do the human pyramid kind of thing. You know, right? Now imagine if, like, we wanted to do a human pyramid this morning. All right? Normally, in a human pyramid, what do you do? You, you put people on the base, the foundation that can support those who are gonna get on top. But let's just assume we're gonna build a human pyramid and we're gonna get, get the kids in seeds one and seeds two, and they're gonna form the base. We're gonna set all these little babies up and we're gonna keep them, to, you know, tell them to stay still so we can get. No, that's not gonna work, right? It's just not gonna happen they're not strong enough they're not stable enough and Jesus knows the only thing that's strong enough or stable enough to support this people these people that I'm building is me so he builds the church on him and that's freeing that's so freeing my job is not to build the church that's Jesus's job that's not my job my job is this, to make disciples, equip those disciples, then send those disciples out to do the same. Because that's the job Jesus has given me. And it's the job he's given you. It's the same one. Because it's built on Christ, not built on me, not built on you, not built on anyone other than Jesus. And that, in a lot of ways, is very freeing. And so we need to be about Jesus, be about Jesus in your house, church. Here in our gatherings, whether it's worship night or here on a Sunday morning, we're about Jesus. Fourth characteristic that we see is in verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I love this because look at what he says. You're being built. So this is something that's happening right now. So it's not that the temple is done. right? Jesus is still building this temple. How does he build the temple? Well, if the temple's people, the temple gets bigger as people get added to it. As people become followers of Jesus, that temple grows and gets larger. What speaks to our mission, our mission as the church, right, is to share the gospel so that people can become part of this family of God, so that people can, can learn about this Jesus, so people can, can be part of this temple that Jesus is building. And so he says, How, how's that linked together? What, what links us Together, he says, we are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, the Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6 that the, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells you immediately, individually. All right? He, that's, what he, that, that's what the Bible says. It's what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians. But there's another part of this that I think we often forget, is that the Holy Spirit also dwells when we're together dwells in the church. And the link, what links you to a believer in China, what links you to a believer, a Christian in Afghanistan, what links you to another Christian in California or Covington is the Holy Spirit. Because that person has the same Holy Spirit that you do, living inside you. And here he says, we are made and built into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit. The Spirit is who unites us as the church. He's the cement, or he's the the mortar between the cement bricks and blocks in in this building that Jesus is building, this temple. All right? And so we need to understand that the, the Spirit of God is what links us together. He, he's the one that is indwelling us and then dwells among us. And so if you want to experience the Spirit of God, spend time with God's people. Because where the people of God are, the Spirit of God is. Do we believe that? I mean, do we really? When you came here this morning, did you expect, did thought ever go through your mind, man, the Holy Spirit's going to be there. Man, I just cannot wait. To be with God's people because the Holy Spirit is going to show up because he dwells with his people. And I don't know what he's going to do, but I can't wait to see. Do we, do we really believe? Do we think that? Do we, that's what he's saying. Right? Jesus building you into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's amazing to me. So there's kind of this mystery that that happens when the church gets together because the Spirit is among us. Well, what's the Spirit? Love, joy. I mean, these are the things that he produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? Miracles, all these different things. I mean, boldness to to communicate the gospel. Do we expect those kinds of things when the church gathers? Or do we just want to come, go, get out, move on? There should be this anticipation that where the people of God are, the Spirit of God is. And not just here on a Sunday, but I'm talking, your house church. When you're with, you know, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Man, you're just hanging out with some Christians at a restaurant. There should be this expectation, hey, the Spirit of God is here. Wonder what, wonder what he's going to do. Maybe we should pray for the, our server. Let's ask. How can we pray for you? And let's see maybe the Spirit of God show up in that way as we just st- take a step of boldness and and ask if we could pray for them. I don't... but There should be this anticipation, this expectation that when God's people gather, the Spirit of God is with us. Because he says this. He says, even um, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What would it look like if we really believed that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who breathed things into existence that you read about in Genesis 1. The same spirit that when God was forming Adam, breathed life into Adam. What would it look like if we really believed that that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that came down like fire at Pentecost in Acts 2, what would it look like if we really believed that he's with us, that he's among us, what would our gatherings look like? What would your family look like? What would your house church look like? What would your own life look like if we really believe that? And then last characteristic is this. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The temple Jesus is building is for God. We exist church. Living church exists for God. Your house church exists for for God. The church in China exists for God. The church in Afghanistan ex- exists for God. The churches where you live in your neighborhood, those people that, uh, who know Christ, they exist for God. When we gather, it's for him. It's not for me. It's not for you. It's his design. The church It's his idea. And even more so, he bought it. He purchased it. It's his. The church is his. Acts chapter 20. Verse 28, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture that shows the value of the church. Be shepherds of the church of God. Paul is talking to a group of pastors, and he says, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. You know how you can tell the value of something? By what someone is willing to sacrifice or spend for it. So what's that tell you about the value of the church? To God. God's going, I want the church so badly that I'm willing to spill blood for it. And I'm willing to spill the blood of my firstborn and only son in order to get it. That's how valuable the church is. And I want to know, how do we see the church that way? Do we see the church the same way God does? As this valuable people that God God purchased with his own blood, the blood of his own son. And that speaks to your value as a follower of Christ, how God sees you and what you're a part of. And I just wonder what would it look like if we actually began to value the church like that, the way God does. And So I asked you a question at the beginning, right? The question was, what's the most beautiful building that you've ever seen? Let's ask God that. God, what's the most beautiful building you've ever seen? You know what he'd say? The church. The church, the most beautiful. How do we know? God says, I gave my son for the church. I I had him go to a cross and spill his blood and bleed out and die for the church. That's how much I love the church. That's how much I love the church. I love what Adam Clark, he's a British theologian. He has this to say about the church. He says, the church of God is very properly said to be a most noble and wonderful work and truly worthy of God himself. There is nothing, says one, so august, so majestic as this church. Why? Because it's God's temple. There's nothing so worthy of reverence. Why? Because God dwells in it. And he goes on, he says, there's nothing so ancient since the patriarchs and prophets labored in building it. There's nothing so solid since Jesus Christ is the foundation of it. And then I love this. He says, Nothing more beautiful or adorned with greater variety since it consists of Jews and Gentiles of every age, country, sex, and condition, the mightiest kings, the most renowned lawgivers, the most profound philosophers, the most eminent scholars, besides all of those whom the world was not worthy, have formed a part of this building. And there's nothing so helpful Because it gives shelter to the poor, the wretched and distressed of every nation and kindred and tongue. And I just wonder, what's your relationship? What's my relationship to the church? You say, so what now? I'm going to ask the band to come. And as they come, I want us to think about our relationship to the church. What's your relationship to the people that Jesus loves so much that he gave his life for them? And first, maybe you need to ask yourself, what's my relationship to Christ? Am I even a Christian? Just because I, I sit here doesn't mean that I'm going to heaven, doesn't mean that I'm a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're here and you're saying, I don't know Jesus. I, I've not surrendered my life over to him. That, that's how you become part of the church, become part of this family, is because of Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. But I, I want you to think for a moment. What's your relationship to Christ and then what's your relationship to the church? Do you see the church as beautiful the way God sees the church? Do you see serving your family as beautiful? Do you see giving just like you would give to your physical family, your biological family? Do you, do you see serving the church that way? We need people to help in, in our house churches to serve with the kids. We need people here to serve with the kids. Do we, do we help? Do we serve? What's your relationship like to the church? Do you expect, do we expect God's spirit to be present when we're hanging out with other followers of Jesus? And not just when we gather with our house church or here on Sunday or worship night. Do we expect the spirit to show up in family worship night? When you're sitting around with your family and your kids? Do you, do you expect the spirit of God to be there? He is. And do you see living your life so others who are not followers of Jesus? become one so that they too can become part of this family that God is building through his son, Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. Another question. I want you to discuss this question with the people next to you as a band plays. If we really believed these things about the church, and if we really valued the people, right, the church, how would our lives look any different than they do right now?